turns, if you would, to Acts 25. So I study through the week and spend time in the Word and, and prepare the message. I, I, I kind of get going in one direction, and then towards the weekend, I'll, I'll read six or seven different commentaries, and usually there's one. I, I can't think of a Sunday that there hasn't been one. It just kind of goes almost in the exact direction. It's like I could almost just stand up and read their, read their commentary because that's my sermon for the week. Um, but, I mean, I don't do that, but it, it just seems like there's always one that lines up. And this week it was the uh, sweeting. And uh, I'm going to start out by reading a, a, a couple it, uh, excerpts, there we go, uh, from, from his book and, and on, his, on this chapter uh, 25 of Acts. Um, yeah, it's always, it's always good to know that I find one that, I'm, that, that the Lord has kind of directed me in my mind and my heart that week in that direction because then I know I'm not like, you know, way out in left field. Gives me a little grounding. Uh, in the early 1920s, Nikolai Bukharin was sent from Moscow to Kiev to address a vast anti-God rally. For an hour, he abused and ridiculed the Christian faith until it seemed as if the whole structure of belief was in ruins. Questions were invited. A priest of the Orthodox Church rose and asked leave to speak. He faced the people and gave them the ancient Easter greeting, Christ is risen. Instantly, the whole vast assembly arose to its feet and the reply came back like a crash of breakers against the cliff. He is risen indeed. How cool is that to, for, for this guy that just wants to bash the Christian faith for an hour to, to have the whole group stand and, and affirm that he is in, indeed risen. He, he is not in the grave. Say what you will, tear it down, beat it up, abuse it, whatever you want to do, but that doesn't change the fact that he is risen. Thank you. I was wondering if anybody, let's try that one again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Uh, the second part is, uh, it's, it's sad, honestly. I mean, the first one is sad, but had a real good ending. But this, this next one is just sad all the way through. After stepping down from office, President Thomas Jefferson set out to write a significant book. He had long been troubled by the supernatural events of the New Testament, yet he... Does that sound like anybody we've been studying? Maybe the Sadducees? Okay. He had long been troubled by the supernatural events of the New Testament, yet he was enthusiastic about the moral teachings of Jesus. Upon returning to his home in Monticello, Jefferson went to work with the scissors and a New Testament. He attempted to separate the real message of Jesus from all the unnecessary. The final product omitted all references to the supernatural, including the resurrection of Jesus. The closing words of the so-called Jefferson Bible read, there laid they Jesus and rolled the great stone of the door of the sepulcher and departed. 
For Jefferson, the resurrection was extraneous to all that Jesus was. His life story ended with death, according to Jefferson. Jefferson would have agreed with the Roman governor Festus in Acts 25. How sad. How sad. And, you know, we joke, but it's, you know, it's true. The Sadducees, that's why they were sad, you see. Yeah. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in the power of God to do the things that he said that he did. How sad. How truly sad. Last uh, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at chapter 24. In the first uh, nine verses, we, we saw the, the Sanhedrin and their, their, their counsel, their lawyer, Tertullian, and how he just had a great disdain for the truth, for justice. He mocked it. He, he, flattered, he flattered Felix, and then he told a whole bunch of lies about Paul, and then he didn't have any witnesses to back up his lies. So he made a mockery of the justice system. Felix delayed it. If you remember, at the end of chapter 24, uh, it, verse 27 says, But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Por- Porcus, Porcius Festus. He hadn't done anything in two years. He didn't want to make that decision. One, they say, because he was waiting for Paul to bribe him with some money. He wanted some money out of the deal. And when he didn't see that coming, then he was just going to leave Paul there. There was no, no, no advantage to him resolving the issue or the case, so just let it go. So the Sanhedrin mocked the justice, Felix delayed the justice, and, and Paul waited patiently for that justice. And while he did that, he trusted God. He was patient. As we recall, he, he was preaching in prison because, I'm not going to put my hand right on it, but um, it, it was said that the all, all the guards, excuse me, all the guards in the praetorian knew about Paul and who he was and what his message was, that his message was Jesus Christ. <clears throat> excuse me. So then Paul, in, in chapter 24, begins in verse 10, he begins to, to share his defense in, in response to Tertullium's false charges, trumped-up charges, Paul says to Felix, you know what, religiously, he said, I have broken no laws. He said, they said that that there was civil strife, that I've caused riots. I didn't start any of them. Other people started those riots. I did not start them. And then Paul says, this is the issue that they have a problem with. This is the issue that they are charging me with. Jesus is alive. There is a resurrection from the dead, and we know that there will be in the future of the believers and non-believers, all will be resurrected from the dead. God's Word tells us that. But Jesus showed us how it's done. He gave us the example. If we go back to to Acts chapter 3 just quickly... 3, 13 through 15, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he was decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the author of life 
This is the key right here. The one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And remember, in the, in the, the Romans or the Jewish system of law, you had to have at least seven witnesses. Well, there was over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw him after the crucifixion on the cross and the resurrection on Sunday morning. So they have more than enough witnesses to prove it. And Peter was saying there, I was one of them. I saw him after the, the resurrection. He is alive. Paul says to, to Felix, that's, that's what they have a problem with. That's what they're their issue is with me. That's the only thing that I'm guilty of, is preaching that Jesus Christ is alive. So now today we move on to chapter 25. Paul is standing trial for obeying the risen Christ. He suffered and, and endured. <coughs> Goodness. <coughs> Excuse me. He suffered and endured beatings and, and jail time and uh, st one stoning. They thought he was dead. They left him. Several times he escaped before they beat on him. This man suffered for Jesus. But to him it was worth every stripe, every stone. It was worth it because the truth of the message is and people need to hear and know that Jesus is alive. Christ has risen from the dead. He is no longer in the grave. So our sermon today is Jesus dead or alive? Well, we know the answer already. But Felix, excuse me, yeah, Felix, Felix delayed the, the trial and handed it off to Festus and said, okay, Festus is going to have to deal with this. Chapter 25, verse 1, Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a, a favor or a concession against Paul, that he might bring him to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them there in Jerusalem, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. It's the first time Paul's mentioned Caesar in any of his defenses. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem? and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. 
But if none of those things is true, which these men accuse me of, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Festus is the new governor, the new guy in town. He's going to go up to Jerusalem, meet the Jews. He knows Jerusalem is, even though Caesarea was the capital of the region, that Jerusalem was the center for the Jews, and uh, those were basically his constituents now, and he wanted to go meet them and, and at their place, introduce himself, let them know that he wasn't going to be the jerk that, that uh, Felix was, make his introductions, and uh, get, get on about the business of being the new governor. So immediately, what did the, what did the Jews do? Hey, we got this guy. Two, two years has gone by. Paul hasn't even been in Jerusalem. He's been sitting in jail up in Caesarea. From what we understand from the words, the scripture, it wasn't too bad of a, a gig, though, because it was in the governor's mansion. It wasn't a real prison like we think of with bars and, you know, muddy water in the corner with rats. But just the same, he was waiting for, for justice to be carried out and to be done. So the Jews right away jump at Festus and say, hey, there's this guy, we want to kill him. Oh, no, they didn't say that. They weren't quite that blunt with him. But they said, let's, let's bring, bring him up here for trial because they knew they had a lot better opportunity or chance to kill him on the road between Caesarea and Jerusalem than they did either in Jerusalem or in Caesarea because of all the Roman guards that would be there. They said, this, you know, maybe we have another chance. Maybe we have our opportunity. We missed it two years ago. Maybe now we can get it done. Therefore, uh, bring, bring the influential guys, Festus says, come on up to Caesarea. He's, he stayed in Jerusalem about eight or ten days. I find it interesting that as, as, as much as Felix wanted to delay and slow roll things, Festus was about getting it done because it says the next day, after he got back to Caesarea, the next day he took a seat on the tri tribunal and, and ordered that Paul be brought. Now, there was two things that Felix and, well, one thing that Felix and Festus had in common. If you look chapter 24, the last verse, verse 27, it says that, that Felix wished to do the Jews a favor, and so Felix left Paul imprisoned. Verse 9 of chapter 25, it says, But Festus, wishing to the Jews a favor, they knew they needed to get along. So, so they were trying to smooth and, and play nice in the sandbox with the, with the kids at the park, all right? He, they, they, he, they, they wanted a good working relationship. They, they, well, uh, Felix was only there for two years, but Festus figured he could be there a lot longer if he, if he worked it and worked it well and, you know, greased the skids and, and had a good working relationship with the Jews. So he brings Paul to the tribunal. And it's interesting, verse 7, around after the, he had arrived, the Jews who came down from Jerusalem stood around him. This is what's called intimidation. They didn't, they didn't just stay in their seats like they did in the council in Jerusalem. They, they gathered around him. They got in his face. 
They'd been waiting two years for this chance. And here they they thought they were ready. This was their opportunity. So they're going to get right in his face. They just stand right around him. I'd be intimidated. Paul wasn't, from what we know, Paul wasn't a a big, big strapping guy that was going to be taller than any of them. So they're there to intimidate him. Uh, Many times as they've tried to kill them, it hasn't worked because that wasn't God's plan. They say, well, we're probably not going to kill him right here in front of the governor, but we're going to intimidate him and try to scare him. Verse 8, Paul says in his own defense, I've committed no offense, not against the law of the Jews or against the temple. Think back to their charges previously. They thought he was bringing outsiders into the temple, which would have been defiling the temple. And that wasn't right. I've done nothing to offense against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. He says, well, you willing to go back up to Jerusalem to stand trial? Paul's no dummy. He knows what's going to happen if he does. And, and I mean, after, I mean it, it, he's got good basis there. What was it in verse 4? No. Oh, there we go, verse 3, sorry. Verse 3, Paul, uh, that he might be brought up to Jerusalem, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. So Paul, Paul wasn't stupid. He, he knew what they were about. They obviously weren't going to tell him his plans, but you know, it didn't take a whole lot to see through that. Paul says, no, I'm going to stay right here. I've done no wrong, as you very well know. If I'm the wrongdoer, he, he was going to stand up to it. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll take the punishment that's due me if I did it, but I didn't do it, so you can't punish me. End of verse 11, he appeals to Caesar, and when Festus conferred with his counsel, okay, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you'll go. And, and it's like, as, as we'll find next week as we move later, deeper into chapter 25, it's kind of funny because he had to stop and think. Festus had to stop and think. Um, hmm. If I send him to Rome, I'm the new governor here, and if I send him to, to Rome with no charges against him, what am I going to look like to the, to the emperor? I'm going to look kind of stupid. And so, as we'll see next week, he's got to figure something out. He's got to come up with some charges if he's going to send them to the emperor. Oh, why'd you send this guy here? Uh, Festus, why, why is this guy here in front of me? Uh, well, because he wanted to come see you. Well, no, that's not, that's not a justifiable reason to send him. So, but he, he was quick. He, he was quick to say, okay, you're going to go to Caesar because he wanted, he wanted this issue done and resolved. He knew that he'd been hanging around for a couple of years with Felix. He says, we, we, we need to just be done with this. And he says, okay, you're going to go. And he thought about it later. But in, in, I'm going to ju- use this verse to, to kind of jumpstart this. Verse 19, Felix is, or excuse me, Festus is telling King Agrippa and his sister Bernice that have come 
to welcome him as the governor in the region. He, he's telling them the, the situation with Paul. He's giving them the, the story and, and what's going on. But he says in verse 19, they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus. As far as Festus knew, he was dead. I mean, it wasn't, he, he didn't believe in God and he didn't believe all that was being talked about in front of him when the, when the Jews came and, and accused Paul of, of you know, breaking the law. He, so, so as far as Festus knew, Jesus was dead. And there's some, some things that, uh, just to point out, um, to say that Jesus was still dead would honestly actually raise more questions than it would answer. The Sanhedrin obviously haven't thought about it, but it's going to raise more questions. How do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain that? If, if, he, if, he's, if he's still dead, then his body would still be in that tomb. How do you explain the tomb being empty? And I, and I like this quote from Sweeting. So I'm going to quote him on this because I, I couldn't say it nearly this well. What transformed despairing disciples into death-defying demonstrators of the Christian cause? If the body was still dead, if there was no resurrection, if the body of Christ was still in the grave, what transformed the despairing disciples into death-defying demonstrators of the Christian cause? They'd be at a loss to explain that. So there's some four, four proposed theories we'll look at very briefly. And you've, you, maybe you've heard some of them before, maybe not. But Jesus didn't, first of all, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted. He, he, he passed out from the loss of blood and exhaustion. Problem with that is if that's the case, and he's so weak that he appears dead, how does he unwrap himself from the grave clothes? How does he move that huge stone from the inside all by himself? How does he subdue a group of Roman soldiers? And it's thought that there was between six and eight right there at the tomb. That would be the normal tomb guarding duty detail, I guess, six to eight soldiers. How, how, how did he do that? If he was truly, you know, he lost all that blood. He was exhausted and passed out. If he, if, you know, he's that weak, how, how did he do all of this? Number two, the disciples stole the body. They made up stories and legends about seeing him afterwards. They stole the body and put it somewhere else so that people would think that he was raised from the dead. And then they had to make up stories that, yeah, we saw him here doing this, and, and this group saw him here doing that, and they're, they're just great storytellers. But how did these men that were depressed and basically cowards because they all left Jesus at the garden... How in the world could they be so bold and optimistic three days later 
about what's going on. There is hallucinations and visions and dreams and seeing a resurrected Christ. They dreamed it up. They had all had wonderful dreams and they all had the exact same dream. What a coincidence, eh? But they ate with him. They spent time with him. Between the, between the resurrection and the ascension, they spent days with him in, in fellowship and still learning from him. My, my, this, is, this one right here is my favorite. Number four. The disciples went to the wrong tomb. The angels forgot to bring their GPS too because they were at the wrong tomb too if the disciples went to the wrong tomb. And if they went to the wrong tomb, then wouldn't Jesus' body still be in the right tomb? The Romans could produce that. The Jews, the Sanhedrin could produce that body if they went to the wrong tomb. And why would some angels be sitting at the wrong tomb to say he's not here? I, I, that, that one just, to me, honestly, that one's kind of what you did. It kind of makes me chuckle. How in the world could they go to the wrong tomb? They know where they put him on Friday. It's just a couple days ago. The angels got the wrong directions too. But Paul, and again, as we look in next week into chapter 25 further, Paul, in his understanding of the Old Testament, in all of his defenses, he's telling, and it's not so much for the, the governor or the king to, to hear, although he wants them to hear the truth, it's so that the Sanhedrin will have their eyes open so hopefully they'll understand and they'll begin to realize that in fact Jesus is risen from the dead. There was reason to be bold. There was reason to be optimistic. There was reason to, to have joy in their lives because the Savior, the Messiah was risen from the dead. And he did exactly what he said in the book. And, and Paul is constantly reminding them and telling them, that I, I'm not teaching you anything new, people. This is what our fathers taught was going to happen. This is in the Old Testament, the books of the Bible that they had. This is foretold that this is what's going to happen. And it did. He's alive. A.W. Tozer says that not death, but sin should be our great fear. I think of, you know, we always talk about if, if, of practicing. Like in the Air Force, we had to practice with the, the fire extinguisher all the time so that if you were in an emergency, you didn't have to stop and think. You just reacted. You responded. Talk about, always talk about, you know, 10 guys with machine guns came through the door right now. What would you do? If you're, if you're not a Christian, get out because we're going to kill all the Christians. Practice in your head, your heart, your mind. Lord, what would I do? Give me the strength. The easiest, the quickest, the best thing to do is to fall on your knees right at your chair so that you'll be less tempted to run. 
But what are you practicing in your heart? When, when you're turned, we're in, you, the last I checked the statistics, okay, they come out every January, the mortality rate is still 100%. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back first. But we're all going to die. Are you practicing? Now, I don't want you all to practice that this week because we won't have anybody here next Sunday, but... Practice in your mind and in your heart. Practice dying. Am I, you know, they, they say as, as you get close to death, there's a light. That light's got to be Jesus if you know him. Are you, are, pra- practice walking towards the light. When, when that moment comes, there should be joy in our hearts, there should be excitement. I'm going home. Not death, but sin should be our great fear. Because sin is that thing that breaks our relationship with our God and Savior. Sin is that thing that that puts a wall there. God doesn't put it there. Our sin puts it there. So add add that to your list of things to practice, okay? The fire, no, not the fire extinguisher. The, The guy's coming through the door, and here's another one. Is that just practice walking towards the light. We should not dread that, guys, gals, all of us. That shouldn't be something that we're afraid of. This is just so temporary. We've got to be looking forward to it with excitement. Because I get to leave this old broken down body and, and go home. Don't get no gooder than that. Not death, but sin should be our great fear. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you believe that? It just makes me think of that verse, weep with those that weep and rejoice, rejoice with those that rejoice. When, when the, the, your partner that, you, that you're at work in the next desk and you are fighting for the same promotion, are you as excited for them that they get the promotion instead of you as you would be as if you'd gotten the promotion? God's word tells us we should be. We should be that happy for them. We should rejoice with them because they're rejoicing. We should rejoice too. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you honestly believe that? I hope so. Because there's joy there, there's hope there. Because what we're walking into is going to be a whole lot better than this place. I love Newberry, guys. I really do. I enjoy it here. Well, I can't wait to leave. (laughs) Just cannot wait to leave. Paul, Paul has that hope here. But he knows that he's appealing to Caesar, one, because he knows that if he goes back up to Jerusalem, they're going to kill him on their way. They're going to have another opportunity. But he, he remembers from... From chapter 23, verse 11, when Christ stands next to him and says, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. He's got Rome in his sights. He's got hope. He knows that he's going to get there because Jesus told him he was going to. So he knows 
that that's where he's headed. And he gets to testify and witness there about Jesus Christ and the resurrection, just like he did in Jerusalem. So that's what he's looking forward to. And we're going to take a a lot deeper look at that next week uh, in Acts 25 and, and getting into 26, most likely. He is alive. He is alive. Jesus Christ. Okay, here we go. Wake up, everybody. He is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And, and folks, have that hope. Have that assurance to live, as, to, to live as Christ, to die is gain. This body needs to just give it up. Give it up and go home. Something to be excited about, look forward to. Father, thank you for your word. Again, we want to remember Vic and Sarah and the boys this morning, Father, that your hand would be on them, that you would give strength to those little bodies, that you would continue to develop their lungs. Thank you for these little guys. And Father, uh, may it be just a, a witness and testimony of faith to the nurses and doctors in that hospital. Father, we ask that you would do a work that your name would be glorified in those little guys' lives, and in Vic and Sarah's life too, Father. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the promise and the, and the guarantee and the, the, the hope that we can have, the optimistic uh, attitudes that we should have and carry with us just to know that someday we're going to see you. And, and Father, help us to look forward to that, to, to the privilege of leaving these bodies and being with you. We look forward to that in Jesus' name. Amen.